Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming to uh, another edition of the Berkman's Tuesday Lunch Series. Uh, my name is Adam Holland, and I'm the project coordinator for the Lumen Project, which is a website and database devoted to archiving and studying any and all requests to remove material from the internet. So you can imagine that we're extremely interested in the topic of today's presentation. Um, it is my great pleasure to be able to welcome uh, our two co-presenters, Sana Kulevska, who in 2013 was a Berkman summer intern for the Lumen Project, then called Chilling Effects, and has since gone on to fame and glory all over the world, including now for Google. And her co-author, Professor Michael Rustat, who is the founder and co-director of Suffolk Law School's IP program, and is also the holder of the first endowed chair at Suffolk, and so um, also brings an incredible wealth of insight and experience to this topic. And with that in mind, I am going to remind you that we are being recorded and webcast, just so that you have that in mind when you speak. Later on, when we're taking feedback from the audience, um, we will be going around with the mic, so please try to wait for that to make sure that everybody gets to hear what you have to say. And then I just want to add one final disclaimer, which is that although Sana is currently a Google employee, the subject matter of the presentation represents the research and work she did prior to working for Google and is coming from her as an individual and as an academic, not as a Google employee, and she is not in a position to be able to shed any particular light on the inner workings of that corporation. So just with, with that in mind for your questions, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Adam. Can everyone hear me? Thank you so much for coming, everybody. Welcome. This is amazing. So nice to be back at Harvard. Thanks so much to the Berkman Center for inviting us. Thanks for the lovely introduction, Adam. We're pleased to be here. And now you might wonder why a Swedish lawyer and an American professor decided to collaborate. I would. So um, our history dates back to 2010. We met in Sweden when I was a program manager and Swedish representative for Lund Suffolk Law Summer Program, which is an academic collaboration where professors from Boston and students from all over the world come to teach and take international law courses at Lund University, which is my law school in Sweden. We met the first time there, and then three years later, I was a visiting student at Suffolk Law School here in Boston. I took Professor Rostar's class in global internet law, and decided to write a paper on the right to be forgotten. This was in 2012, and the topic was extremely hot at the time. It still is, as you know, hence we're here. But um, I really wanted to dig deeper into this topic, so when I got the position as a research assistant intern at the Berkman Center here at Harvard, also in 2013, I decided to dig a little bit deeper into the topic, wrote a blog article on the right to be forgotten, and researched with Adam on cyber defamation, etc. And then, when it was time to move back to Sweden and finish my law degree, I had such a huge interest in the right to be forgotten, so I decided to write my Masters of Law thesis on the same topic. It went really well, and uh, I sent the paper to Professor Rastar, and he really liked it. So did the biggest law firm in Sweden, and they awarded me with a prize for best master thesis in Sweden. 
at Lund University. And uh, we decided to collaborate using the fundamentals of my thesis and um, ideas from Professor Rustad's Global Internet Law Hornbook. And here is the result. Reconceptualizing the right to be forgotten to enable transatlantic data flow. This article was published in the Harvard Journal of Law and Technology in the spring edition of 2015. And uh, just like Adam said, I am here not as a Google employee, but an independent author, and everything we say today, and um, things that we have written in the, our proposals, etc., in this article, is our own ideas, and it was written prior to my employment with Google. So don't mix them up. Also, when it comes to the Q&A in the end, I might only be able to participate in a limited fashion since I totally understand you might be curious and have all these Google-related questions, but as you know, this is it. And today we will start with remembering and forgetting in a digital age as an introduction to you guys. We have divided the presentation into two parts, the European part, the European privacy protection. This is where we cover privacy laws in the EU. I would cover this part. And the right to be, the right to be forgotten is, of course, central here. And the right to be forgotten is currently existing in the EU and Russia. At the time we wrote our thesis or article, we only have a right to be forgotten in Europe, in the EU. And later on, Russia also adapted the right to be forgotten. But this is not covered in, in today's presentation. What we will cover is the right to be forgotten in Europe versus the non-existing right to be forgotten in America. And this is where Professor Rustad will come in to shed light to the transatlantic clash and uh, privacy law in the US. We'll end up discussing our proposals on how to narrow the right to be forgotten. And I'll tell you soon why it's such a broad legislation or legislation to be. And how to narrow it to limit the scope for public figures and broaden the scope for private individuals. We'll end with a Q&A. So now I just want you to sit down, relax, take a step back, think about what you did this morning <coughs> online. What way have you contributed to the information society we are currently in? How have you shaped your digital persona today? It might be rather fragmented. Uh, everything you show online is just a piece of you, and that's okay. That's how we deal with it online. I mean, I know what I did this morning. I liked my cousin's engagement picture on Instagram. I shared a post on Facebook. And I commented on a law and technology blog. What have you done? So Eric Schmidt, executive chairman of Google, once said that we are creating the equivalent amount of information every other day as all of humanity created from the beginning of recorded history to 2003. And this is in large part enabled by the World Wide Web. So what does it look like? Every minute of every day, we are uploading 300 hours of video on YouTube. We're liking over 4 million likes on Facebook. And people are pretty active on Tinder, the website. Over 600,000 swipes. 
There's a lot of single out there. But what does this really mean to us? <laughs> the default of the human brain is forgetting. Research show that 20 minutes after our presentation today, you will remember only 58% of what we just said. In a month's time, only 21% will remain in your memory. So the default is forgetting. But now with a perpetual stigmatized digital memory, we're seeing a transformation where remembering has become the new default. And Victor Meyer Schoenberger, professor at Oxford Internet Institute, said that all this data we're creating is becoming etched like digital tattoos into our skins. So what do we want internet to remember about us? You might have this picture from when you were young, or the comment you really regret. You liked it at the time, but now, no. Or, yeah, you know, everything. There might be a speeding ticket that you don't want to appear when you Google your name. Is the internet a cruel historian? Well, someone who indeed thought that internet was a cruel historian is this man, Mario Consteja Gonzalez, a Spanish citizen who fought for five years to remove 18 words about him online. La Vanguardia, the Spanish newspaper, reporting about his death from 1998. And now he said that now this information is outdated because the proceedings had been concluded. I don't want it to appear when I Google my name. La Vanguardia said, no, we're not going to remove your, your information. So this case went up all to the highest court of European Union, CGEU, and they granted his request. Based on Directive 9546EC, which is the current privacy directive of European Union, he got a right to be forgotten, a right to remove his past online. And uh, Article 12 and 14 simply states that a data subject has a right of erasure when information is no longer relevant or inaccurate. And Article 14 says that a, a data subject has a right to no longer have his or her data processed if there is no legitimate reason to, to keep it. So the court decided that Google is now a search engine that is a data controller, not a neutral intermediary. And due to his preeminent position organizing the world's data, a search engine like Google is, according to the, to the court, far more likely to interfere with a data subject's data protection rights than a website publisher. That's what the court said. Someone who didn't agree with this approach was Nilo Jaskinen, Advocat General in the EU. He said that, well, a right to be forgotten will have serious consequences of freedom of expression and might lead to censoring of the web. So the irony of the right to be forgotten is something called the Streisand effect. The more you try to remove yourself from the web, the more visible you get. And it origins from Barbara Streisand, who wanted to have pictures, about, uh, pictures of her house removed. At the time she filed a lawsuit, only six people have downloaded this picture of her house. 
After the lawsuit, 420,000 people had downloaded the same image. Was it worth it? Well, we'll see what uh, John Oliver has to say about this. Luckily, the only thing stopping this ruling from doing real damage is that it is, by its nature, completely ineffective. Because what the EU court doesn't understand is that the internet is like quicksand. The more aggressively you fight to remove yourself from it, the deeper you're going to sink down into it. And the case in point is the guy who started all of this. The case originated in Spain. A man there argued that when a Google search turned up an auction notice of his repossessed home from back in 1998, that somehow that being out there was a violation of his privacy rights. That Spanish man is Mario Costeja Gonzalez. <laughs> this is his photo, uh, which was on an article from the New York Times about his crusade to remove links mentioning his debts from 1998. In doing so, he is now world famous for being that Spanish guy with debts from 1998. The only thing I know about him is the only thing he didn't want me to know. And that, that is why all of this, all of this is why the right to be forgotten is no longer workable in the internet age. Nothing you are embarrassed of on the internet is ever going away. And that is true. Nothing is never going away. Because this decision is not about removal. It's not about removal from the internet. It's about delisting. It's about removal from search, web search. The content will still, still be available online, just a little bit harder to find. So this court decision is applicable on all search engines, which has been widely criticized by the UK House of Lords, which stated that this will have serious consequences for the smaller search engines, which might not be equipped to handle all these thousand removal requests every week. And something we have criticized in our article is that this court decision is so widely written. Data that is inaccurate, irrelevant, or no longer relevant or excessive in the light of the time that has elapsed, will have a right to be forgotten. What does this say? And how do you operationalize this? So this is where our proposal comes in, and Professor Rostad will discuss this later, on how we would like to narrow the scope and give better guidance to search engines on how to operationalize this. Is this what search engines are supposed to do? Because if you look at this, the data should be removed. Ah, uh, it's not really like that. It's more like this. It's not about deletion solely. It's about balancing fundamental rights. So we have freedom of expression on one hand, privacy rights on the other hand. Privacy will trump freedom of expression when information is outdated, no longer relevant or irrelevant. And freedom of expression will trump privacy when there is a journalistic content, journalistic interest that needs to be protected. So the right to be forgotten is a complex issue. It's not purely legal. It has an ethical dimension to it, but also a philosophical dimension to it. And to really be able to understand the complexity of it, we decided to 
pinpoint four different parts of it. So, time and relevance. There is no such thing as absolute relevance. How do you know when something is going to be relevant in the future? And how far back in time should you go to determine that something can be removed today because it's no longer relevant? Time plays a huge part here. Secondly, source and content. So the right to be forgotten mirrors our everyday lives. Content could relate to your religious beliefs or your political views, just a picture, a post, blog post, articles, interviews, pornographic content, terrorist content, anything, past relationships. And then the source, do we want to distinguish between an article that is written in Boston Globe or New York Times versus a simple blog post? Or is it that simple? Perhaps tweeters, microbloggers nowadays could also be considered journalists. Where do we draw that line? And something that is highly relevant for our discussion today and also our proposal in our published article is public information and public figures. Who is a public figure? When do you become a public figure? Once you've entered the stage and the world of fame, can you ever step down from the stage and become a non-public figure again? And what about public interest? Who decides what is in the public's interest? And can something ever disappear and not be in the public interest any longer? These are all ethical and philosophical questions. And they need to be discussed because they are not expressed in the court decision. So the fourth is power and humans. Now Google, as a search engine and all the other search engines, through the court decision got the power to determine what should stay online and what should not stay online in a search for a person's name on Google. But would it, is this the best solution? You might ask yourself. Is the best solution that a private entity should have this power? Would an alternative solution be to give more powers to data protection authorities or other government bodies in the member states? Or perhaps to the courts? And what about humans? Well, you see that do we need humans to, to determine whether or not to remove? Well, as you can see, we need someone who can balance the fundamental rights and all these ethical dilemmas what about in the future? Do we need that? Or maybe more computer, computerize it? Artificial intelligence could be useful. You never know. This is all a new area. So now it's been rather philosophical. Let's go to some data. And I chose to show Google data, since Google is central in the court decision, as well as Google is the search engine that has the best and mo most developed transparency report. And uh, this data comes from the Google transparency report. And as of today, Google has received 406,000 takedown requests. That is 1.4 million URLs. 
And out of these URLs, Google has decided to remove in 43% of the cases and to not remove or push back 57% of them. And some of the most common reasons for, for a pushback is, uh, or for not removing is if the content relates to the person's profession, if it's self-authored, if it's really high-quality journalistic content, political speech, past crimes, and if the person complaining is a public figure. And here we have these websites constitute 9% of the most common removals. So these are the most common websites where people ask to have their content removed. Now I want to put you in action. I think you've got enough information now to be able to put yourself in a situation where you are working for a search engine and trying to uh, determine whether or not to remove based on the sometimes limited facts that you might get. So these examples, I have a few, and they're all uh, taken from the transparency report. So I will show you the example, and then I will ask any of you. So we need a mic and uh, to answer, and it would be lovely if you could motivate your answer. So the first case is from France. A priest, a priest convicted for uh, possession of child sexual abuse imagery asked Google to remove articles reporting on his sentence and banishment from the church. Would you remove or not remove in this case? Oof, because one, it's about a past crime, Two, it's about the consequences of his crime. Three, the people, people need to know that this happened in case he decides to join some other church and lead it. Anyone else? Not removed because it is part of the public record once it got into the newspapers. Interesting observations, thank you. And here is the result. Google did not remove. Very correct. The pages from search results. Next up, Hungary. A high-ranking public official asked Google to remove recent articles discussing a decades-old criminal conviction. Remove or not remove? Would anyone like to have a guess? Adam. Since no one else is jumping in, I'm going to say not remove because if they're articles, presumably they're journalistic endeavors, the fact that they're recent articles suggest that despite the conviction itself being old, that the public official is still in the news, perhaps running for re-election, perhaps controversial for some other reason, and so their historical record is relevant to current public interest. Interesting point. It, it could be, and um, it could also be that this is the very limited information that Google would get in a request. So um, a search engine needs to determine just on the basis of this information. Uh, do you want to say something more? Yeah, correct. 
So in this case, Google did not remove. You want my Google can just ask for further information if they if they require for the evaluation itself. Yeah. So as also stated in our transparency report, that um, of course, if uh, if Google lacks information, we'll ask for. You want to say something? Uh, if I were Google, I'd also ask myself what law actually applies to the case because the notion of critical conviction, of those sort of, of issues are not harmonized around, the, around Europe. And so maybe the law that has the most connecting factor might have something to say about these issues. Interesting point. I will not be in a position to comment on that further. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to the next. We have uh, Germany. Thanks anyway, though. And um, a victim of rape asked Google to remove a link to a newspaper article about the crime. What do you say here? So we have a victim of rape, and that victim's name is obviously listed in, in this news article. Yeah, you're right. Google removed the page from search result for the individual's name. And these might be simple cases, but now let's move on to something different. In our article, we have trying to elaborate on how far can you extend the right to be forgotten before it collides with freedom of expression. So for example, if um, I send a removal request to Google and it's granted, it's gone. However, a journalist wants to write about my granted removal request. <laughs> so would you remove also the second article reporting on this? That would be a removal of a removal. How far should you continue this? There is a case here from the UK. After Google received a news story about a minor crime, the newspaper published a story about the removal action. The UK Information Commissioner's Office, ICO, order Google to remove the second story from search results for the individual name. What do we do here? Are we fine by just removing the first or also the second and continue? Couldn't you use the same logic about uh, the individual's position in this story? So if the reporting of the minor crime is reporting the name of a victim of that crime, then you have a pretty clear signal for the value of removing both links. And I'm just wondering, in those places where the question becomes about the reporting, can we use the same premise of, is the reporting on a specific instance that involves a public official, I mean, to hold those criteria steady? Good thinking. Anyone else? So in this case, Google complied with order and removed also the second. So now you might wonder, why are Europeans so keen on privacy? Well, there is history. And <laughs> there is absolutely history. And we have, if you look at the gray spots here, there are several treaties and directives in the EU when it comes to privacy. European Convention of Human Rights, the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the EU, the Treaty of Lisbon, and the OECD 
privacy principles. I'm not going to go through these, just want to illustrate it. What's relevant here is Directive 9546EC, because this is the, the directive that led to the right to be forgotten in the Costeja case. Soon, this one will replace the current directive. We'll get a new reform. So in two years, we'll have a data, data protection reform consisting of two parts. One directive is a police directive to enable better transborder collaboration in serious crimes. Not relevant for this article. But this is the general data protection regulation. So in two years, the right to be forgotten will not, long, not only be case law, like in the Costeja right to be forgotten case, it will also be law. Codification, Article 17, right to be forgotten and erasure. And this is half of the article. And I put it here, you should absolutely not read it. But I want you to see that there is so much information that says nothing. And just like the, the court decision was so vaguely written, it's hard for search engines to operationalize this. And it's the same here. This doesn't give any guidance for the search engines on how to operationalize this. Well, if the data is no longer necessary, if the data subjects withdraw consent, et cetera, et cetera, then there should be a right to be forgotten. Mm. What's important here is that there is advisory counsel for Google who would, will help Google to operationalize this. There is also the Article 29 Working Party, which, has, which is an independent <coughs> group of data protection authorities suggesting policy changes for Google. But important here is that Vivian Redding, the former EU commissioner, when she proposed this legislation in 2012, she was really, really careful in pointing out that there needs to be a balance between privacy and freedom of expression. And as you can see here in Article 17.3, exercising of the right of freedom of expression is listed as an exception for the right to be forgotten. A very important exception. So she said that there is no right that is absolute. The right to be forgotten is not an absolute right. It always needs to be considered and balanced with freedom of expression. And especially when we are dealing with transatlantic data transfers. So with this, I will leave over to Professor Rustad, who will discuss the importance of really having a collaboration, transatlantic collaboration. Because the way it looks right now is that we have privacy in Europe and freedom of expression in America, and this creates a transatlantic clash. So thank you for this, and um, we'll leave over to yours, Prudence, here. Thank you. <clears throat> With the global internet, it's really hard to see data stopping at uh, customs to uh, check to see whether it's US data or European data. And our problem initially came from the idea of the interconnectedness of data and that something that happened in Europe would have an extraterritorial effect. And our idea was, is could we have a limited right to be forgotten that would also retain expression? Now, initially, when the right to be forgotten was proposed, there wasn't a single 
single force in the United States that would have said that we should have any right to be forgotten under any circumstances. But actually, since we wrote our paper, we wrote it very early in the debate, things have been changing very quickly. For example, in October of 2015, the European Court of Justice struck down the Safe Harbor uh, 1.0, which basically uh, had been the law in 14, for 14 years. US companies had agreed to these OECD principles. But it was that in the wake of PRISM and these large um, uh, national security agency uh, spy episodes, which really uh, got Europeans very nervous about US law. Actually, when you talk about US law on the right to be forgotten, um, there's probably not a lot of expression in the people um, of Walmart, for example, which is the idea of posting humiliating images of people while they're shopping. And we thought about, well, could we take some of the easy cases and think about whether there should be a right to be forgotten? Um, we, actually, since we actually looked at this website. We took the tamest possible images from, uh, from the Walmart uh, site. Another um, um, type of, of, of site we were thinking about where a right to be forgotten, for example, could be consistent with expression would be the so-called mugshots. Um, um, of. On the one hand, there's been 15 states that have proposed mugshot um, legislation. 14 of them are, have already failed, which would basically uh, prohibit people from charging to have the mugshots taken down. So you could have a case, these are the worst cases you could have, but you could have an 18-year-old kid that's um, pictured in an orange jumpsuit and that follows him. That's the digital tattoo that um, Santa is, is talking about. Um, the other point is, is that um, revenge porn is another probably an easier case. Revenge porn defined um, by uh, Marianne Frank and Danielle Zitron is a non-consensual posting of photographs involving intimate um, activities. And there's actually the remedies. There's, there's a few states that have begun to criminalize uh, revenge porn. California tried it. And California only had selfies. And so they actually had to amend the statute. So revenge porn would be another area that um, you could think that there's very little expression interest, First Amendment interest. This is not the New York Times versus Sullivan and posting this kind of information. Um, the Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act is the primary statute which has prevented people from using the tort system. The tort system seems like a logical system because you can think of someone posting uh, demeaning uh, images as constituting the tort of the intentional infliction of emotional distress or defamation. But because of Congress when they passed Section 230, they passed it initially to discover publishers of websites, third-party postings on, on uh, websites. But beginning with the Zeron case, um, court after court have extended beyond publishers to distributors to every conceivable tort possible. Sarah Jones actually had some success in the lower court. Sarah Jones was a Cincinnati Bengals cheerleader. And, and the photographs of her were posted on a website called The Dirty. Right? And the name suggests they, um, they uh, um, had posted, uh, had third party postings, encouraged third party postings, such as she's had sex with every member of the Cincinnati Bengals football team, and other kinds of uh, images. Um, images, even, this is the one I could use, the safest one I could use here. Um, and she, uh, she actually won a, um, a lower court uh, victory in the Kentucky Federal uh, District Court. But the Sixth Circuit actually um, reversed it and said that um, 
that uh, the dirty, that encur merely encouraging third parties to post information would still not uh, strip the website of its immunity. So the website still has images of Sarah Jones to this day. And again, the question is, is that their profit motive of making profits on demeaning and humiliating images strikes me as having a rather low First Amendment interest. Let's talk about privacy just in general. Um, Sana said there is no right to be, to, to be forgotten. And some, could, some would argue there's no right of privacy in the United States. We are very slow to develop privacy. Uh, Sana mentioned that in, in Europe, privacy is a fundamental right. Articles 7 and 8 of the Charter basically give private life and also data as considered a fundamental right. We don't have privacy as a, a fundamental right. In fact, um, privacy is sectorial. In some sectors, like the financial industry, financial services industry. Um, also, you could think of um, health, um, health uh, services with HIPAA, that there's some reasonable security in some industries, but it's very piecemeal. Um, we have had some minor movement toward a right to be forgotten in California. Again, they always say when you shift the continent, all the nets go to California, and all the innovative statutes come from California, too. So California um, statute actually had a right of eraser and has a right of eraser for, for, um, for uh, persons under the age of 18 that they may erase um, postings of their own, which creates the problem of, of having a posting of when you have a picture of yourself with a solo red cup or, or, um, or um, you're pictured, for example, um, uh, the Hulk Hogan case you may have read about in our proposal. We, we, we have um, limited the right to be forgotten to private persons, not celebrities like Hulk Hogan. But in the Hulk Hogan case, there was testimony by a very anguished father whose, whose daughter was, had a video of a daughter that was anonymously posted on Gawker having sex in the restroom. And he told the Gawker website developer, every time I'm thinking of this image of my daughter in, 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 in this urinal, and does that have to be a, uh, does that have to be a, 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 her, her, her legacy? And so the website said, if you complain, we're just gonna publicize it more. And there's no right to take down under US law because it's a third party posting. And so even if it constituted an ongoing tort, how are you going to even locate these anonymous, um, anonymous uh, tort feasors? So the Privacy uh, Act um, of 1974, which is a federal statute, only applies to the federal government. And so a lot of these right-to-be-forgotten cases actually involve private actors who would have no application whatsoever. As I mentioned, um, the EU safe harbor was struck down in uh, two, October 2015, and just in the last week or so, they've de developed an informal agreement, Privacy Shield, which is, uh, is 2.0. But there's nothing about right to be forgotten, and I'm wondering about, and we wondered right from the beginning of our article, is would there be an extraterritorial effect here? In other words, the United States has absolutely no development of right to be forgotten. In Europe, it's a fundamental right. Will there be these clashes of legal cultures? So our reform proposal was, that assuming that we did, um, we did try to operationalize um, the right to be forgotten, how would we do it and try to preserve, um, how would we preserve and balance expression? And as Santa pointed out, they, they said that in Article 17.3 of the General Data Protection Regulation, it is to be balanced, but they gave no guidance whatsoever. So we were writing this fairly early in the debate. We thought we might operationalize it by thinking about um, 
Google, uh, Google Privacy Council, Peter Fleischer, says there's actually three degrees of, of deletion that could be, um, could be analyzed. First is the, the data subject's own postings. That seems easier, easiest case. Facebook, for example, allows you to delete your own postings, delete your own photographs. Many other social media do as well. That seems to be the least uh, objectionable. The more difficult uh, degrees of deletion would be when someone reposts something that you posted and then maybe makes a comment on it. Then we start getting into the areas of expression. Certainly the third area, when third parties are, are um, posting pictures or data, that's when we have this uh, problem of the First, First Amendment. Our solution was actually to have a right to be forgotten for ordinary people. In other words, people that are outside of, they're not public officials, they're not either limited public figures or general uh, public figures. That the right to be forgotten, in short, would be for all degrees of deletion, but even for private persons, we acknowledge that there will be some limitations, that you can't delete everything if there's a, if there's a, if there's a nexus to the public um, interest. So our proposal in general is the idea that we can balance it, we can have a right to be forgotten that may be even consistent with US law in the sense that the kind of right to be forgotten cases that we just talked about, the, the mug shots, the, mis the merchants of misery who profit from humiliating images, um, that we thought that the First Amendment interest might be rather slight in that area. So uh, thanks so much for your uh, attention and we, we uh, look forward to your questions. Hello, so I'm Michel Raymond coming from the University of Geneva. Uh, thanks for the talks, very interesting. And uh, also, I, I am also on, on the right to be forgotten, so it's very nice to have some perspective on the question. I have a more fundamental uh, question regarding the nature of the right to be forgotten, because on one hand, we are framing it in terms of data privacy. On the other hand, we are trying to decide what's uh, the point between uh, privacy on one hand and freedom of the press on the other hand. Yet this is a, a conversation that has been going on in the European Union since 2007. For uh, uh, I can recall the incident during the Rome II regulation when we excluded uh, privacy offenses along with defamation from the regulation uh, because we did not agree on what should be that level of protection. So uh, two questions in that regard. What gives data protection the prerogative to decide on these issues of free speech, first? Second, how would this sort of, uh, of arrangement, if we realize a, a true a right to be forgotten, play with more traditional tools of privacy protection, such as injunctions? Well, they, let, let me take the second first, is that it, um, the United Kingdom is one of the few countries with any kind of super... Uh, injunctions and and our our uh, right to be forgotten would not be consistent with that. That would be an additional uh, basis. But what we're what we're arguing is is that you can't have these absolute rights of expression, privacy. That they actually have to be balanced. That and that we're 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 applying the New York Times versus Sullivan framework, which is we have 50 years of development in the United States, by which the public official and the public figure um, will have essentially no right. And that's our balance. 
whereas private individuals will have a full-blown uh, right right to be forgotten under proposal. But you're, when you're talking about the Rome II uh, regulation, um, its exclusion, um, you were thinking of um, that motor vehicle accidents and, and other kinds of uh, torts. Information-based torts don't work very well. And even Rome II has a lot of difficulty with any kind of information-based torts. It works extremely well for automobile accidents and product liability. But to develop what the, what the choice of law should be in a delect which is in the information privacy area, I think you probably made the right decision. Yes. So the kind of data that you were talking about was mostly written data. And I was wondering how you think this would extend to other things like wearable devices or Internet of Things or data coming from our cars. Uh, obviously, uh, traffic light cameras are an example where we, we backpedaled and said, hey, we don't want to take pictures anymore. But let's say that people mix up their devices, medical devices, wearables, etc. cetera. Uh, in that case, you want to be forgotten or the data deleted because it wasn't actually yours or wasn't actually accurate, but it's a very slippery slope. So how, how are you guys thinking about other kinds of data? So when you're moving to other technologies beyond, this is a very narrow right to be forgotten. I'm glad you reminded us of this. And will it translate to other forms? In fact, one of the dangers uh, I worked on a long time ago, I worked on a project called the Uniform Computer Information Transactions Act. One of the issues was is when you're developing the scope of it, that, there, that may, may not be computer software. That's really your issue. That we had to think that there might be other forms and so to think about that, and one of the reasons I think it failed was I think they, they, they had that technology in mind without thinking about things that there would be evolution. But the, the right to be forgotten, I think when it goes to other kinds of devices, when you're talking about medical devices, the Internet of Things, um, it's not going to, I don't think, I think the same framework could, could, could translate that, that, um, that, um, that the New York Times versus Sullivan framework could be stretched to that. But thinking about that, uh, thinking about this, I think further, um, and since we're writing, writing the article and Santa is not a part of this, I think we might have, when, especially when we're talking about medical devices and so on, we might have to have a more complex framework than this framework, which is done by, through, basically through artificial intelligence. In other words, the Google template keeps growing as a part of their experience. They now have you know, more than a million million four hundred thousand URLs and, and and it has evolved. By the way, it's evolved, I think it's evolved in the direction of our framework. Almost every case that you saw fits within that framework. Private individuals have a full-blown uh, right to be forgotten. So but when you're thinking about this, I think we could go further and having um, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, Section 512 has a takedown, but they also have a putback process. And I'm thinking about with medical devices, there might be a public interest in having that data restored. So there should be some kind of process where you don't mechanically take down uh, information that's medical just because a person's a private individual without considering the public interest. And so what I would think is that some system, what I'm worried about is the administrative burden of this kind of system. But there has to be some way that you can have a real balancing. You shouldn't be doing these things by machines, even though we're talking about the internet of things, right? You should have some type of mechanism like the DMCA. The DMCA was highly criticized. But in fact, you couldn't find one supporter of it when it was, uh, when it was enacted. This put down a take back. But, um, 
This might be a possible framework, especially when we're talking about medical devices. Two comments. One, it seems like DMCA might be the right approach for the second party deletion because basically you know, if somebody has, recop has copied something, well, they're copying something and... That's a very interesting point is, is that um, currently, for example, the revenge porn cases, yeah. the only successful cases are ones in which the person can claim a copyright. Yeah. And so thing. the copyright uh, model um, may be one that, that is adaptable. And it, and it's, and it is, it, but again, it is an administrative burden. I'm thinking about all this. The externalization is very easy for the commission to say there was a right to be forgotten. And basically what they did is they uh, reallocated the entire burden to a private company, which is what one of the other issues is, should it be a Google that decides these things or should it be another kind of entity? You, the more you not comment. I have a comment Sorry. on that, uh, not as a Google employee, as a writer of this article, and, uh, and as a thinker in general. So um, when it comes to uh, your uh, DMCA suggestion there on the second degree deletion, that might be possible, but I think you should go back to the whole philosophical thinking again of my data and my data. So when you think to have a copyright uh, right, you need to own this data. You posted, someone else reposted, maybe they steal your data then. Yeah. Uh, or some kind of copyright infringement. But what about if you think, uh, this jacket, it's my jacket. But a picture of me, is that different? I'm owning this jacket, am I owning a picture of me in a different way mm. than I'm owning a thing? My data or my data, I think it's good to separate these, to understand the complexity of all of this, um, and removal to come there. Can I also mention that Private figures don't always say private, so let's give an example. Um, let's say I, when I declared bankruptcy and I drove a company into bankruptcy 20 years ago, and I file, I file a right to be forgotten saying, you know, I'm, a, I'm an uninteresting private person and this should go away. Next year I run for state treasurer. Suddenly that stuff I remove becomes really relevant, but there's no way to back that out. That's because reason. once it's out of the database, who's going to put it back in? No, I think that's an excellent point, and maybe there should be a time, uh, a time which is a, a five-year limit, for example, by the way the data is down, and some form of re-examination process. I was thinking of actually the reverse. Well, maybe that maybe not use an arbitrary time period, but do things change? And, and Santa's actually been really interested in this issue about how can you ever relinquish your role as a general figure. And of course, a great uh, Swedish actress, Greta Garbo, was legendary for being very reclusive. She won the Academy Awards and um, tried to actually assume the role of a purely private person. I'm not sure she was entirely successful. Another recent example, Harper Lee, who wrote um, um, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. She was legendarily in, not, in, in, in trying to move from being a, a public figure to uh, being a private person. So this transition, you're not one or the other. We're always in the process of becoming, as Heidegger would say. I think also here when you're talking about the differences between the EU and the US, and also to elaborate a little bit more on your, your thoughts here, in Germany, um, German constitutional law, they have um, um, one provision stating that my data is my property self-determination self right. And that's something to keep in mind because nothing of that exists in, in, in the US law. So when I'm talking about my data and my data, you need also to take this into consideration, the, the strict European perspective. It is so different. 
Oh, yes. Uh, I have a question about your research methodology and the rubric that you have proposed. So it seems that you have said that Google has received about a little over 400,000 requests since this ruling, and about 43% of them they have uh, taken down. So have you studied, uh, if they applied your rubric, uh, how that would uh, work out? Or do you have plans to do that in the next paper? We've only looked really at the individual cases and, and, and that, that have been released. I mean, one of the issues is that it would be great to have all of the data, in a, in a, and you, can, you again have no comment on this, but again, to look at the data and have, have uh, social scientists actually look at it. The data that they've released clearly uh, follow, seems to follow our, our, our framework. And, the, and, and it would be in, interesting to see some of the, the cases in the gray area. I was also thinking that maybe um, in Europe they have on the unfair contract terms elective. They have a, a, a they have um, a, 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 a annex of suspect terms. I was thinking about a model like that, for example, that having certain areas that are where you have almost an absolute right to be forgotten: your sex um, life, your intimate life, and there are other areas where you have a which are in the gray area that may or may not be forgotten, and then maybe the uh, area that you should never have a right to be forgotten. In other words, I think this is still evolving. This is a, this is a, um, a moving stream, not a stagnant pond. <clears throat> yes? I have a more of an ongoing case study situation that came to mind when you were talking about what rights does a public person have or a private person. Well, here's a case recently where you have roughly 150 people, none of whom became publicly known until the notorious event happened. That's the crash of German wings. And for those of you who don't recall, the pilot, the first officer of that plane, allegedly crashed the plane deliberately. So we have a situation where potentially his private medical records, should they become publicly known, will be of great public interest. But does his estate, does his family have the right to have that erased? And of course, the 150 victims who were innocent in this, and whose only claim to historical fame right now is the fact they're associated with this notorious event. But their families, in your opinion, or Google's opinion, have the right to say, you know what? Search on that name. It shouldn't be associated with German wings. I would not comment on Google's opinion. We haven't, we haven't, we have, we've never thought about post-mortem rights to be forgotten. We've, we're only thinking about living persons. But, the, but it's a very real issue that um, you can imagine that where the public interest would greatly outweigh uh, any kind, of, even though that person was a private person at that particular point, and were only made public by, the, by this um, um, intentional criminal act, it seems that the public interest would be very, very high. But how do you, um, I don't think there has been a case like that that I'm aware of, that, but um, certainly it, it, um, public interest would seem to be very high, and I think there would be a right um, not to be forgotten. Hi, my name is Charlie. I'm a Bergman Fellow, and um, I joined to your concerns. Um, first, I'm going to say that uh, you only um, are considering uh, United States and Europe, but right now in Latin America are coming some uh, interesting but messy misconceptions about the right to be forgotten, and I, I am very concerned about what is happening in my country, Colombia, the Supreme Just, uh, Court of Justice has declared that people that have murdered other people uh, 
have the right to be forgotten uh, and they don't understand the uh, unlisted concept. They, they want to erase people and something in my mind comes up. Do we have the right to remember uh, people that have been affected as victims directly or indirectly have the right to remember what has happened? Um, even about the court decisions um, is my concern, especially for uh, terrorists that uh, one day probably won't be considered as terrorists. This is one area that in Europe really differs quite a bit from the United States is that in Germany, for example, there's a, what is called a right to oblivion, that after you've served your sentence, you have a right not for that, for that to be stricken from the record. In other words, they have a rehabilitative model. Whereas in the United States, we have a, I would say that we have a, the, the, if your, your criminal status can follow you throughout your, throughout your whole um, life. So the issue about remembering, I think remembering is the new default now. And what we're suggesting, should there be some limitations where you have an eternal memory? In other words, we have a digital eternal life that's being, Chronicled. Everything is being chronicled. And I think with the Internet of Things and medical devices, it's not just the Internet, but it may be, it may be um, um, all kinds of things that are, we haven't even thought of. So we're, just, we're suggesting, we're not advocating for a right to be forgotten. We're suggesting that there may be, that there may be some reasons why it, that, that, um, that, we, we, that we could have um, a right to be uh, forgotten that would be consistent with, um, with the public interest. And also to add to your comment there, thank you. Um, a right to be remembered, yeah. But on the other hand, um, that I would say that I would say that that is the privacy right. But you need uh, just remember that um, the right to be forgotten is not total deletion. It will still be uh, the information will still be accessible. It's only a removal in relation to the person's name when searching on Google. So pe people will still have a right to be remembered and still be able to find information. My concern is an 18-year-old kid who's pictured in a jumpsuit. And so that every time the, he's applying to college, he's applying for an employer, it follows them all the way through their life. And everyone has something that they would like to forget, especially when they're young. And that's what maturity is about. So that, I mean, to have an absolute no right to be forgotten and to say this kind of mechanical jurisprudence that violates the First Amendment without thinking about well, what are the effects? Sociologist Irving Goffman said in his research is that, that we all do impression management. That's a part of being a human. We like to convey, I'm Santa is, but is dressed to convey a certain impression, right? I'm not, I don't do as well. But it's all impression management, right? And so shouldn't you have a right to control your, yourself? And that's really the, the issue, especially when you're talking about people under the age of 18. So to say that there should be never a right to be forgotten under any circumstances, not for revenge porn, there are academics out there that have never found a case where right to be forgotten is justified. So we're just saying that there may be some areas where expression, the, the expression right might be very low, but the, the privacy right should be uh, honored. First of all, thank you for the talk. It uh, sounds like a very interesting research. My name is Eldar. I'm a Berkman Fellow. And uh, I was wondering, we haven't spoken about the roles of intermediaries here. And even if we do accept the notion of the right to be forgotten, which I 
do think it's novel. Um, our search engines, and probably under the new GDPR, it's going to be more intermediaries, which basically act as a judiciary uh, balancing fundamental human rights. Now, my biggest concern here would be what appeal process would we have? What kind of oversight do we have upon Google's decisions on search engine decisions, especially when we know that 40%, uh, I would say, of, of uh, requests are accepted, and then who can appeal? Because no one knows about uh, the, the incident, and the only one who can appeal is the one who filed a request which was accepted. It is interesting that almost all the transnational institutions that have evolved have not actually been governmental in institutions, you know, with the exception of the Cybercrime Convention, which was a purely aspirational. ICANN, for example, in the domain name, which is a, not a government organization, is a private entity. So the question is, should we be ceding so much control to private entities? Notwithstanding with Google, but in thinking in any of these, these areas, should there be some kind of oversight? And I think that is a, a, a question, and why I would be leaning toward more of a put down and take back uh, framework, which would, may involve some judicial review, because currently, you're right, there's absolutely no judicial review. So if you have information that you think should have been taken down, you have a very good case for it. There's no precedence in the system. The data is re released is intermittent. And so maybe we need more uh, accountability, especially, and, and that, the, that this is just the beginning uh, stages. In fact, that when we were writing it, there, there really were no uh, templates whatsoever. So, so maybe the, this, that will, it, will evolve uh, beyond that. There is actually a right to appeal. So uh, in the Google Transparency Report, Google clarifies uh, how it works. And uh, if the complainant is not uh, satisfied with a pushback decision, uh, the complainant can uh, turn to the data protection authority in uh, the complainant's uh, case, in country. Sorry. Yeah, but that's only when things are getting uh, rejected. If something is getting accepted and it's removed, no one knows about the decision except the one that was accepted, and he doesn't have any... He won't um, appeal about these Also, in the transparency tests. report, it says that Google's uh, policy is to notify the webmaster from, we from where the, the URL has been taken down. Yeah, I know. The website can, but us, the society, can. If, for example, someone was mentioning that article, he doesn't know about it, only the BBC, for example. And also, uh, the working party, Article 9 29, said that they're probably going to uh, tell Google to stop doing that as well because it doesn't comply with the directives. So that might cease as well. Do you mean that the complainants don't know when, uh, when uh, things have been removed? Currently, the, the, they are, exactly, yeah. Um, hi, my name is Mary Gray. I'm a Berkman Fellow. Um, thank you for the, for the really interesting conversation and the presentation. I, I, I don't want to be too reductive, but in many ways I feel like um, one framework we could use, and, and maybe it's a next to the use of intermediaries, is to say this is a, a company that's business is selling information. It's a particular kind of product, and I want it as a company to bear the costs of, of uh, curating that product or get out of that business. So I, I feel like I'm less, um, I suppose, sympathetic that there's heavy administrative burden for Google. And I, I feel like in many ways, societally, it's to put pressure on a company that absolutely profits from collecting a lot of data to be able to, of course, be thinking about how 
public record is, is uh, something we all want to circulate. Um, but at the same time, that I want, I want companies that basically profit from collecting data to also bear a significant amount of cost um, in, in caring for it carefully. I mean, it's an, it's, um, it, you're really, from an economist's perspective, you want them not to be able to externalize the costs of, um, of collecting data, which is, which, is, which is reasonable. But I guess you can't have it both ways. You, you can't uh, criticize uh, Google for uh, you know, making arbitrary decisions, et cetera. Um, and also, um, then, I guess it's in the position of how do, you, how do you get at that balance, I guess, is the real final analysis. <clears throat> Could you explain how your plans for developing this proposal and how you might actually bring it into force? Well, I think de facto, um, the idea that when we were writing it, there was, there was really no template. And de facto, um, it's already becoming the, the standard. Um, and and uh, Santa can't comment on that, but the way that they do look at these cases, you find that public officials and public figures um, generally lose these cases. I think the Article 29 working party that, you've, uh, that you talked about has elaborated uh, further that's not just public figure, public official that has to be considered, but you have to also consider a lot of other factors. Is the information, for example, about intimate life? Is the information... Is a part of the historical record? Is a part of public health? So it's been refined further than ours. But our, our point was to have some operationalization of, of Article 17.3 at the time. And there was none. They just said that there should be a balance. And I thought, well, we thought um, New York Times versus Sullivan has 50 years. There are some that criticize New York Times versus Sullivan. But it does lead to robust, the whole robust um, public debates. We have some experience with it. Would that be a framework that could be reconciled? Um, and that's where we, we came to our point. But the practical, we're not law reformers. Neither of us are, in, are we're, I'm a law professor, and um, you're certainly not in a position. Maybe we should explain more what the uh, New York Times versus Sullivan actually means sure. to our third degree deletion when it comes to, we want public uh, figures to reach a higher bar before they can get information deleted. They need to reach actual malice. As, maybe you actually want to yeah. elaborate further sure. on that. Sure. In other words, it's, um, uh, I think your chances of being a public figure or a public official getting a right to be forgotten are kind of the same as having, winning a defamation case, that it's going to be very, very difficult to show, this, uh, to show that there's been a malicious posting by a third party. Now, we did acknowledge that public uh, figures and public officials, let's take uh, Senator Shaheen from New Hampshire, right? She actually tried to delete some of her posts about health care policy. And... Um, we thought that that should not be permitted. But if she's talking about her Labrador retriever in a post, she's in a purely private capacity that even maybe a, a public official or a public figure might have a chance. I think the Hulk Hogan case is another example. You know, say flatly that they should never have a right to be forgotten is probably wrong. That, for example, a secret, um, a secret filming of someone um, someone's um, sexual life seemed, seemed to me that even, even a uh, public figure doesn't forfeit that right. But the New York Times versus Sullivan framework came at the height of the civil rights movement. And the New York Times would have been bankrupted had the Supreme Court, for the first time in American history, said a tort has to give way to expression. 
And so it's been later on, it's been stretched to things like the intentional infliction of emotional distress and other tort actions. And we thought, well, this is a logical extension too, because here we have privacy, which in the United States, by the way, privacy-based torts, that's where it, it emerged. Louis Brandeis, who, who taught at this law school, Justice of the Supreme Court and his law partner, were the first to actually conceptualize that there was an idea of privacy. And Santa's talked about the long history of privacy within uh, Europe. So in other words, that, that um, this framework um, is pretty well established within US law, and it does moderate. It doesn't say that there's an absolute right to be forgotten. It's, an app, it, it, it's subject to expression as a way of operationalizing it. So that was our thought. To give you maybe a more concrete example to understand our proposals better, would be a limited public figure. So we have private figures, full deletion rights, with some exceptions when it comes to um, when it comes to free expression and uh, journalistic content. Then we have public officials and public figures. We separate them, and uh, using the New York Times versus Sullivan uh, standards here. Um, we differentiate between general public figures and limited public figures. So just to give an example, limited public figure might be... I'll give an example. For example, a swimmer. Right. Swimmer might be uh, uh, famous only for its swimming. And if a news article is reporting on its swimming, medals, uh, Olympics, etc., this information should stay up online according to our proposal. But if this swimmer, which is a, a limited public figure... Um, the journalist is reporting on his dog or cat uh, being sick, then that is not relevant to being a swimmer. Uh, however, we also have the general public figures, which are more, could be the Kardashians or the Obama family, they're in a greater scope public figures. So everything that happens in their lives falls within the scope of, of um, uh, expression. Yeah, the they have no lim yeah. The definition is that you inject yourself into the public debates. I hate to use myself as an example, but when I was a very young professor, I stupidly got into the field of punitive damages. And I was on the side of, in favor of punitive damages. So when I was um, doing briefs before the US Supreme Court, literally my church, the Boy Scouts of America, every organization known to mankind was on the other side of the punitive damages debate. I was a limited figure when it came to punitive damages. So anything that I said in my congressional hearings, my articles was fair game. In fact, I was defamed by uh, a vice presidential candidate, uh, Joe Lieberman. He said, you look forward to more of the falsehoods from Michael L. Rustad. And um, I had, um, of course, he knew he was protected because I'd interjected myself into the debate. I sh probably shouldn't have done that. But, I, I, you know, they, they, but if they're writing about my private life, my life as a non, in, outside of that arena, that would have been a very different thing. And although I, I suspect we could keep this conversation going for several hours, we're, we're running out of time. So I hope that you will join me in thanking Professor Rustad and Sana for their marvelous presentation. Thank you.